Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and on Saturday I saw my first vomiting elf of the season. Merry Christmas from Manchester! <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I once broke my arm changing a light bulb. Sounds like the start of a joke. How many Hannah Dunleavy's does yeah. it take to change a light and I'm Jen Offord, and I think if there's one thing the British public can unite over, it's that we don't want Jeremy Hunt to be the next Prime Minister. Later on, I speak to Dr Lauren Arrington, Head of Department at the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool, to find out more about Constance Markiewicz, the first woman to be elected to the Houses of Parliament 100 years ago this month. Whoop, whoop. We catch up with Gabby Edling from Bloody Good Period to find out what they're doing over the festive season. I talk awards in Jenny Off the Blocks. And I do Disney's Big Hero 6. But first, sex, regrets and racist milk. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're taking back control. Whatever that means this week. So yeah, let's kick off with the continuing batshittery that is Brexit. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to, eh? Seem like a dim and distant dream where Brexit lathers up with Bobby Ewing in the shower? It needn't be. The European Court of Justice has ruled that the UK has the legal power to stop Brexit by unilaterally revoking Article 50. Let me say that again. This could all go away. By the time this podcast hits your ears, we'll probably know whether Teabag's deal was voted down by Parliament. But this ruling from the EU's top court means that Britain could prevent a no-deal Brexit from happening if it wanted to. No deal is no longer a valid threat. The ruling even allows time to be bought in order to hold a referendum or general election. Let me say this again. It could all go away. Yeah, but Nick, what about the will of the people, which was once again strongly demonstrated among the pro-Brexit contingent last weekend, as approximately four people descended on Parliament for Tommy Robinson's Brexit betrayal march? Oh, all right. The pro-leave march attracted somewhere between three to 8,000 people on the side of the bigoted bullback. But unfortunately for Tommy, around 15,000 turned up to protest against him. Now, my maths isn't great. Uh. Viewers were relieved, slash disappointed, slash watching I'm a Celebrity instead, when it was announced that the much-discussed televised Theresa May v Jeremy Corbyn Brexit debate was off the second most welcome cancellation of an embarrassing public two-hander since the Owen Jones v John McDonnell rap battle went by the wayside Sad earlier times. this year. Sad times. <laughs> After weeks of back and forth, claims and counterclaims, it was announced that actually the TV debate was pointless and unworkable, making it the perfect analogy for Brexit itself. Does anyone want to know what Nigel Farage has been up to in the last week? The willy of the people. <laughs> oh, hang on. You probably already know because it's constantly reported on despite having absolutely no political significance. Well, in case you were wondering, he's quit UKIP again. Oh, God. He's had enough with their extremist politics, apparently, and their obsession with Islam, which is funny because... Oh, no, it isn't. Meanwhile, Farage told The Telegraph that he's planning to form a new party to spearhead the Brexit campaign, because it's going well, this is, lads, and that it's also his destiny to do so. Which is funny because... Oh no, it isn't, is it? What is Nigel Farage's destiny? Fucking... <laughs> like, like literally. <laughs> oh, I mean, knows? harsh, but probably true. Answers well. on a postcard, please. Speaking of irredeemable asshats, turns out a pair of hedge funds owned by prominent Brexiteers have placed significant bets against the UK high street to make the most of that sweet, sweet uncertainty threatening <laughs> the economy. Odie Asset Management, part owned by Crispin Odie, and Marshall Waste, part owned by Sir Paul Marshall, have declared short positions against consumer-exposed companies, including retailers, estate agents and banks, to the tune of 149 million and 572 million squids, respectively. If, like me, you're not that au fait with the intricacies of hedge funds, it's a bit like if your dad left you outside Ladbrokes in your buggy while he remortgaged the house and spaffed that and the family savings on a three-legged nag in the 315 at Doncaster, then put his sneaky savings on a sure bet and used the winnings to leave your mum. A cunt's trick, basically. Speaking of which... Perpetual Wazak Boris Johnson appeared on the Andrew Marr Show on Sunday, prompting the assistant editor of The Telegraph, Christopher Hope, 
to tweet a thinly veiled suggestion that BJ is about to move on the Tory throne. He said, and I quote, Boris Johnson is on fire on the Mar show. His passion for Brexit burns bright. His friends liken him to Aslan <laughs> in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Ready to end he rule. That's when he actually okay. put... Brackets he, sick. Yeah, <laughs> brackets vomit. <laughs> he rule of the Ice Queen in today's Sunday Telegraph. His moment could come this week. And in many ways, he's right. In that Johnson lives in a fantasy land, produces an inordinate amount of shit and belongs in the wardrobe of a country house of some bosh bird. Oh, God. Maybe they'll make him cut his mane like they did to Aslan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I find it slightly troubling because, of course, Aslan basically was supposed to be a Jesus. thinly built analogy of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, they didn't just make him cut his mane, they shaved him all over. <laughs> also, to be fair, Aslan was the rightful king of Nadia, whereas mm. Boris Johnson is just a twat. And also... Aslan was nice. Oh, I feel really sad now. <laughs> thinking about that weird puppet of him on the BBC. I feel really sad thinking about a freshly shaved all over Boris Johnson. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. <laughs> right, well, actor and creator of HBO series Girls, Lena Dunham, was back in the news again last week as sorry once again didn't seem to be the hardest word. In a piece written for The Hollywood Reporter, leading feminist Dunham apologised for standing up in defence of girls writer Mari Miller, who was accused of sexual assault by actress Aurora Perrineau last year. Dunham, who faced a huge backlash at the time, said there were few acts she could regret more in life than publicly denying Perrineau's claims. And let's face it, she's had a few regrets now, right? Oh. I reckon she's got some sort of spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> She continued via the open letter, which does always seem to be, to me, the best way to settle disputes slash fundamental betrayals. You have been on my mind and in my heart every day this year. I love you. I will always love you. I will always work to right that wrong. In that way, you have made me a better woman and a better feminist, which I'm sure Perony will be delighted and relieved to know. I am so unbelievably angry about this fucking letter mm. and it all stems from the expression that she tries to use to defend herself, which is, she says, a man I loved like a brother. And I'm so annoyed for about five different reasons. The first of which, saying I loved him like a brother asks us to accept something on faith that she is saying to us mm -hmm. when she wouldn't accept something on faith that another woman has said. Mm. And the second thing is that someone who has a brother, and I'm sitting in a room with people who have brothers, yeah. one of the things that Me Too has made me do is actually think long and hard about how I would feel if a man that was close to me, be that my brother, be that my best friend, and apologies to both of them if they're listening, because I, I cannot believe that would happen, because that is the fucking point. Mm. You cannot believe that would happen. And no matter what I felt personally, if there was an accusation against them... I could not, in good conscience, just go out and accuse the woman of lying. And that's what she's done. So to try and make it seem like, you know, it's because of this extraordinary love that she has for him that the rest of us don't fucking have, a, like, mm. like, the rest of us don't have people in our lives, like actual brothers that we've thought about. Fuck off, Lena Dunham, quite frankly. <laughs> just fuck off. In summary, fuck off, Lena yeah. Dunham. Get yourselves comfortable on the carpet by my feet, kids. It's time for a story. Blinding, breathless, shaking, overwhelming, exploding. Oh, White God. God, I come inside her, my cock throat. No, I can't carry on. And not just because of the lack of punctuation or the fact that Dunleavy's hidden herself inside a jumper. <laughs> that, dear listeners, was this year's Bad Sex in Fiction Awards winning entry, taken from James Frey's Katrina. Uh, Frey beat off the competition hey! to come first from hey! an all-male shortlist. And do you know what? It's one of the only times I'm not mad that it was an all-male <laughs> shortlist. Now then, I'm not saying this means women are better at writing sex scenes than men, but only three women have won the award in its 25-year history. Also, I've read enough Jilly Cooper under the covers to know good sex writing when I read it, although I will never forgive her for coining the term a buttercunt. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Rupert decided that one of his ladies should be nicknamed a buttercunt because she was always ready for him, Hannah. Oh, I thought it was like something like Butterface. <laughs> No. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's amazing, but but, but I can't. 
No, I mean, it. it wasn't. It, so wasn't <laughs> it wasn't rancid butter. It was freshly churned. Oh, right. Okay. Well, Petter's descent from a righteous organisation that cared about animals to a full-on laughing stock continues apace as it decided to top the milk is racist statement of earlier this year with a request that we all moderate our language when it comes to expressions that include animals. Stone the crows. Sorry, I mean cuddle the crows. Seriously, this is so batshit. Sorry, mat shit. (laughs) It's difficult to know where to start. In a bid to combat, and I quote, speciesism, you heard me, speciesism, the organisation produced a list of commonly used but racist-to-animals expressions and their suggestions for a replacement. Brace yourselves. Instead of killing two birds with one stone, we are requested to say feeding two birds with one scone, (laughs) which is a great idea. Unless you actually do it. Because I'm thinking if you can't feed bread to ducks, you probably shouldn't give them pastries either. (laughs) Instead of saying beating a dead horse, which I'm not sure anybody actually does. It's flogging, right? Yeah. Yeah. We should say feeding a fed horse. And take the bull by the horns should be replaced with take the flower by the thorns, (laughs) which is racist to roses, if you ask me. Absolutely. I'm not sure if we can expect a full list of suggestions for every speciesist expression, but here are some ideas. Instead of saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, try, you can take a horse to a really nice spa for the day, but let it decide for itself whether it wants a couple's (laughs) colonic irrigation. Instead of saying, like a dog with two dicks, say, like a well-nourished pet unsure of which of its righteous owners love it more. And instead of saying, like a bull in a china shop, you can say, like an animal rights organisation that needs to rethink its strategy. But let's not forget, milk is racist. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we say a massive heartfelt thanks to all the men not killing women. Seriously, let us give it up for all the men not murdering women. Good on you, lads. You're doing a sterling job. And while I wouldn't usually assume to speak for an entire sex, I feel very confident that all women appreciate you not murdering them. Seems like that would be a needless to say moment, right? Nah. New Zealand police have confirmed they found a body in the search for Grace Mullane, a 22-year-old British graduate, and a 26-year-old man has been charged with her murder. It's a tragic death of a young woman and her life has been cut way too short. But cue an onslaught of victim blaming on social media. Truly, it has been horrific, if not sadly predictable. She was backpacking on her own. The nerve of her. She was using Tinder, just asking for it. Male male violence? Uh, Not all men. Why would you even say that? Backpacking didn't kill Grace Mullane, nor did Tinder. In fact, none of her choices killed Grace Mullane. A man did and it is his choices that need questions asked about them. Grace Mullane's family and friends have lost someone they loved, and it's due to no fault of theirs or hers. And anyone questioning that can go fuck themselves. Wondering what to do for Christmas with your pals, loved ones, members of the same office? Then how about a trip out to see our faces? You know it's the right thing to do. Our next and final gig of the year is December the 16th at Leicester Square Theatre, and we have got Lolly Edifope, we've got Laura Bates... We've got Susie Ruffle and we have got Felicity Ward. It's going to be cracking. You can get tickets and find out more information on our page of Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. See you there. Hi, I've joined on the phone by Lauren Arrington over at the University of Liverpool. Thanks very much for joining us, Lauren. My pleasure. It's 100 years since Constance Markovitz was elected to the Parliament. She has not become a household name in the UK, which people put down to the fact that because she was Sinn Féin, she didn't take her seat. But they're missing out on the life of a really interesting woman, aren't they? Absolutely. She's a dynamic personality who also tells us a lot about a very important period in our history. What was it that first drew you to Constance? I began as a scholar of Yeats. And she was a friend of Yates when they were young. And that's how I was first introduced to her life. I became interested in the work that her husband was doing in Dublin. And so I started looking at some biographies of her in order to find out more information 
And I started to see that what I was finding in those biographies wasn't really reflecting what I saw in the historical record. What do you think the quintessential story is? Her turning up to a meeting of the Daughters of Ireland during the Irish revival, the cultural revival of the first decade of the the 20th century. And she's reported to have shown up at this revolutionary meeting just coming from a ball at Dublin Castle, still like in full regalia of tiara. That, That story, while it's often used against her, you know, to sort of describe her aristocratic tendencies it really does encapsulate the way that for a long time she had a foot in both worlds you know in terms of the Irish upper class and the British establishment and the Irish revolutionary movement she belonged to the ascendancy class the land holding class of Irish people who were Protestants she is a I, I suppose we could say a problematic figure because she actually killed a man oh sure I know not not all scholars agree that this is true. You you do you do do you? Yes, and I don't think that's problematic at all. When you think about the role that she played in the Easter Rising events that kicked off the Irish Revolution, the Easter Rising was a rebellion that was organised by the Secret Society of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which, as it says, was an all male organisation. The Irish Volunteers, again, an all male organisation. And the Irish Citizen Army, which involved men and women. And that's where Constance Markovich uh, had her place. So Markovich led a group of Citizen Army volunteers um, who occupied St. Stephen's Green in the middle of Dublin uh, during the Rising. And that's where she fired a shot and uh, wounded a policeman in the arm and the side. He was taken to hospital and he later died of his wounds. So that's often used against her, um, that she took great delight in killing a man. But you have to consider that she's part of a revolutionary moment where a lot of killing is happening all over Dublin. And the killings by men who were involved in the Citizen Army or the Irish Volunteers or the Irish Republican Brotherhood are never considered problematic. So I think it's rather sexist to point out there being a problem with Markovich having fired a shot and wounded and killed a man. Oh, absolutely. Agreed. Although I think there's something about political climate that actually we do demand purity of our heroes. Do you think that's gone some way to obscuring her legacy in in this country? Well, I think it goes a little bit further than that. I think one of the primary factors for obscuring her legacy in uh, Britain is the fact that she wasn't just Sinn Féin, she was a socialist. And so it wasn't just simply a matter of Irish independence, which would enable her to be reconciled into a British history that now accepts the validity of Irish independence for for the most part. But it means that she's even further at the margins of the historical record. It's remarkable, given how much you've said about all male organisations and also what we know about not just the time, but the time in Ireland. I mean, it was a particularly patriarchal society. It's remarkable that she she got as far as she did. Or is it? Well, there are a number of important Irish women whose histories have been recovered as part of the recent centenary of the 1916 Eastern Rising, um, how their role as combatants and as non-combatants is now being recognised quite publicly, how their role in shaping Sinn Féin policy, such as uh, the Irish Republican woman Dorothy McArdle, who wrote the official history of republicanism, you might say, a textbook called The Irish Republic. The political history, but it documents the role that so many other women played. Often these women were bereaved siblings of men who have died um, in the rising or wives, but sometimes they were women who were Republican in their own standing without any familial connection. And that's where Markovich has her place. Her husband. Can we visit the story of whether or not he was a count? I've seen different opinions in different places. Yeah, so he was a count um, on Polish terms. His family was much like uh, the Gore Booths, uh, Constance's family. They were a, a land-holding family uh, in, a, in a rural area of a settled territory, in this case, po- a part of Poland that was uh, settled uh, or extended into um, the eastern Ukraine. He did have, the family did have the right to call themselves counts based on the size of their land-holding. 
So he he was a count. She was unbelievably well respected, but she also had detractors, didn't she? Contemporaneously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people were out to discredit her because they saw her as betraying the values of her social class. She was very a very emotional person, but her thinking was very strongly grounded in uh, her reading, in her understanding of international movements, her understanding of what socialism could be in Ireland, and her very deep understanding of the lives of the Irish working class and rural labouring class. And some of that understanding came because of her upbringing on, as I said, this large estate uh, in the rural west of Ireland. Her parents were quite philanthropic in their attitudes to the labouring class that worked on the estate. So um, her mother, Georgina Gorbuth, set up, for example, an embroidery school so that the women who worked on the estate, whose husbands worked on the estate, could have their own income. And this is rather, you know, a kind of upper middle class thing to do, but in terms of the, in our own terms, but in terms of their own, their, their time, it was quite a radical thing to do. So she was introduced very early to the living conditions of people who were unlike herself. And that understanding increased during her time living in Dublin and uh, her work during the Dublin lockout, which was a, um, a major industrial dispute that saw a number of major concerns come to the fore, not just the wages, but also the living and working conditions of people, um, of urban people in Dublin. She's obviously a lot better remembered in, in Ireland than she is here. So asking what her legacy is may be difficult because we're talking about sort of her legacy here and her legacy in Ireland. Maybe it's easier to ask what her legacy deserves to be. She was a major political reformer. I would argue. She took an important role in campaigning for Sinn Féin, which was not just a nationalist endeavour in her mind, but was part of an international movement that would improve the lives of everyday people. Now, her extent to affect real policy change was hampered by compromises that were made after Irish independence and the kind of middle-class status quo that took over during Irish self-government. But her ideas were incredibly avant-garde and international in outlook. It's 100 years in December. Actually, I'm not entirely sure of which date is counted because there was an election early in December and then not a result until way late in December. Although I'd imagine that Sunderland probably counted first, even back in those days. Are there things planned for the 100th anniversary? I think most of what was going to happen has already happened earlier this year around International Women's Day. For example, a portrait of Markovich was donated by the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, to the Irish House of Commons. So it was transferred to Westminster in order to recognise Markovich's contribution to British political life as the first woman elected to Parliament. And I would argue as the first woman elected to Parliament, pushed the Conservative Party to have a more progressive agenda and putting in putting forth Nancy Astor, who's generally regarded as the first woman um, elected to Parliament in British political history. There was quite a lot of publicity for Markovich and other women around the recent centenary of the Easter Rising, which happened just two years ago. Yeah. Can I ask uh, what recommendations you might have for anyone who wants to do any further reading? Well, there's, of course, my own book, which yes, is called well, Re- Revolutionary <laughs> Lives. <laughs> and it's important because I went back to the archive in order to build a history of Markovich's life and work from the ground up. So not building from received histories and then simply adapting or refining them, but actually going back to the contemporary source material in order to understand what she was doing. And that brought a number of new elements to light in her life, including how deeply read she was in political history and political theory. And it also brought to the fore the extent to which uh, she was an important artist. And that career she, in a way, sacrificed or adapted to her political ambitions because she saw real world change as being more important than what she was doing in, in the art world. All good bookshops? All good bookshops, published by Princeton University Press at a really good price point. It's around 20 British pounds. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. My pleasure.
Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. We have got a voucher that will save you money today. I'm really bad at scanning, Hannah. <laughs> help me out. Someone help me out. But that is true. We do have a voucher that will save you money on our gigs that is running through until... December the 16th. That is running through until December the 16th. And if you put SI241, that's SI, and then the numbers 2, the number 4, and the number 1, at the end of your checkout process... Basket promo. At at the end of your checkout basket promo, then you will get two tickets for the price of one on either our December gig or our January gig. I'm with Gabby Edlin, CEO and founder of the bloody lovely Bloody Good Period. Gabby, I must tell you that, in fact, in honour, apparently, of this interview today, I seem to have synced with Bloody Good Period. So I have to warn you, don't tell me anything too emotional or show me any pictures of kittens. (laughs) Otherwise, we could be in real trouble. I can't believe I've brought your period on. I'm actually delighted. Unbelievable. I'm very excited and delighted. (laughs) I'm very excited because... Our first article was on Standard Issue. Was it? And that was how everyone started hearing about us. Yeah. That's why I'm so excited. But That's also because you're great. Oh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> God, I want to ask you, because this is a relatively new kind of terminology, we've only really started hearing about this in the last few years, but for anyone who doesn't know about Bloody Good Period, what do you guys do? How did you come about? And also, what is period poverty? I'll start with period poverty. Mm-hmm. So that is, it's simple as not being able to afford products mm-hmm. that you need for your period. Whether that is pads, tampons, menstrual cups, you know, reusable pads, whatever. The point is, is that there are people living in poverty in the UK, not just in developing countries, because of the government and everything to do with that. And one of the things they can't afford are period supplies. And while obviously period poverty comes along with all other poverty, it's particularly important because it obviously only affects women and people who menstruate. And, you know, it's nothing new to standard issue listeners that women and people who menstruate are the least likely to be considered by public health or Mm. the government or anybody. Mm -hmm. So the thing that sort of really sparked people thinking about period poverty, in the UK at least, well, for me, it was an article by Maya Oppenheim in Vice that was about what people do when they're homeless um, on their period. So I'd been thinking about that for a few years. But then Tina Leslie from Freedom for Girls, who is a charity who provides period supplies overseas in Africa, got a call from a school teacher who said, we have girls here who are skiving school Mm. because they can't afford to get pads and they can't afford to get tampons and so they're just staying at home rather than coming in and facing the fear of leaking that was in the metro it just went like like everybody was talking about it because when you start talking about girls missing school in the Mm. uk in leeds you know that's when people start taking notice Mm. period poverty affects anyone really that that has a period. It's not just people who are living in poverty. The lack of menstrual equity affects everybody. So there's people getting fired from their jobs because they were leaking on chairs and they weren't allowed to go and change their pad. You know, they didn't have enough toilet breaks. Or there's people who are suffering from horrendous conditions like PMDD or endometriosis that are going unrecognised because doctors are just not experienced in those problems as well. But then there's also just people who cannot leave their house because... They don't have the products, Mm. which, you know, actually don't seem that expensive if you can go to a massive Tesco and buy a pack for, you know, £1.20. But actually, a lot of people living in poverty don't have access to the gigantic supermarkets because they're a bus ride away or a car ride away. So it's just what you can find in your corner shop. And that can be like three, four quid for a pack. And when you're thinking about that every month, if like it's a mum and she's got daughters, it's a lot to contend with. Mm. And... It is an expense that it's not fair that this is existing just for people who menstruate, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So the work you do is predominantly with refugees and asylum seekers. Why did you decide to focus on that group? I started volunteering at an asylum seeker drop-in centre because I was a nanny. And the dad that I nanny for set it up through his synagogue. 
and as a Jewish woman asylum and refugee is very much part of like my ancestry and it's something that's always been really important to me and so I went and helped at this drop-in center because I felt like it was something I really should do and when they sent the list of all the things they were collecting there was no period supplies on the list you know although half the people there in fact maybe more than half were women mm. when I sort of asked about it the answer that the, that the people setting up gave me, it wasn't like, oh, no, 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 no. It was, oh, yeah, 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 we have them. But it's sort of, yeah, we give them out in emergencies. We'll give them out if someone asks for them. And that was just the moment that I was like, number one, always an emergency if we don't have the products. Number two, periods aren't emergencies. It's just life. It's life. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't say that about toilet paper. Mm. Oh, we'll give some toilet paper if it's an emergency. Like, what does that even mean? Mm. And number three, someone might come and ask you for pads once they might even come and ask you twice they will not ask you again but regardless periods are going to happen every single month and you know there needs to be this constant supply the way that there is a constant supply of food at these drop-in centers water you know clothes it's one of these essentials and they're expensive asylum seekers live on 37 pounds 75 a week they're not allowed to work regardless of what the daily mail tells you like no one's taking your jobs and often they're homeless often they're living in horrific conditions so period supplies are just going to come to the bottom of that list so that's why i decided to start collecting them so i just put it on facebook that i was collecting and like people just started sending them in like in their droves like it was it was quite amazing and that's when I realized like okay this is something that needs to be done this is something that hasn't really been taken care of especially in this asylum seeker community so I set up bloody good period and and it's just gone from strength to strength in in terms of people supporting us but also in terms of the need was always there mm. it's just now that I feel like drop-in centers and food banks are feeling more able to ask for them so we don't set up any of our own drop-ins or anything like that we go to places that already exist that people already trust and we get the pads there and we make sure that every single month they have a really good supply we don't ask them to store them we say give it all away you know it's very easy for the people who are already doing these volunteering drop-ins or you know or banks to just make sure that the people there have pads and it's been really brilliant because it's also allowed us to build a reputation in which people trust us and we are now able to i think start demanding change in the uk about how periods are seen you know the awareness of what even is a period why is it important why is it political talking to mps and people in power about how do we sort this out how do we help you sort this out how do you help us sort mm. this out which has been really positive and i think you know it's such a small part of life if you don't have to worry about it mm. but if you do it is everything it's huge and it keeps you in your house not even your house it keeps you, it just traps you regardless mm. so so yeah that that is essentially what what and why because it is the season of goodwill and all of that how can we help bloody good period over the festive period well just in general but over the festive period do you have any specific campaigns going on we do and it just happens to be called the festive period what? <laughs> i know That's so much. it's almost like i put something in front of you um, <laughs> just wouldn't leave you wouldn't let you leave until you said it out loud we've got um a campaign at the moment called festive period mm -hmm. hashtag flow ho ho it's basically you get to just go online to our website which is bloodygoodperiod.com and fill up a stocking and you can fill up a light stocking, a medium stocking, or a heavy stocking. And basically, all that money will go towards us putting pads in people's knickers. It just means that we'll be able to get more pads to more people. We've got a huge waiting list of women and people who menstruate who are waiting for pads at their drop-ins. And it's going to really give us a boost. So please, please donate via that way. And also just keep an eye on what we're doing. We're thinking... So you have events as well, don't you? We have a lot of events. We have Bloody Funny. Yeah. Which is very standard issue. Because yeah, we've got, got the... our favourites involved oh, in that. The, yeah. the Jen Brister. Oh, we love her. Yeah. She is, I mean, she is a real genius. And she she's hosted our last two Bloody Funnies. And will continue for as long as she agrees to. And is coincidentally also in our January the 15th show at the Leicester Square Theatre. But um, this isn't about me. So. <laughs> she's fantastic yeah we we've had loads of sort of standard issue comedian type people so it's natalie byrne has written this book called period mm -hmm. and she's just glorious it's just amazing it's full of period stuff i mean 10 percent comes to bloody good period that's not why i'm going on about it but also that's but also enough. 10 percent yeah. comes to bloody good period but it's just it's got pictures of blood which we don't 
you don't really see. Talk about. We will be doing lots more stuff around the UK as well. So we know that we've just been in London very much for the past two years, just building up and sort of trying to be really careful about how we do it. We don't want to expand and then just fuck everybody over. Mm. But we will be going UK-wide with other things, so please stay tuned. So where can we find out about you? So bloodygoodperiod.com is the place. And then Twitter, we're at bloodygood underscore underscore. <laughs> For Instagram, we're bloodygood at bloodygoodperiod. And the amazing Rachel is on our socials and she can always tell people what they need to know. But our website is pretty much the place to go for festive period, for events, for everything. And just to keep supporting us because we're not funded by the government, obviously. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Who is? Who is funded by the government? We can't even apply for the tampon tax. We cannot, I mean, is this not outrageous? What does that mean? So there's, because, so you know that we pay, so we pay tampon tax, Mm. obviously, because it's luxury. Of course. um, Of, and they haven't got rid of it yet because they can't because of Brexit or some bullshit. Mm -hmm. But they have put, so David Cameron is sort of to just be like, okay, ladies, calm down. Mm. Decided to put all of that money into a fund. Yes. Which women's charities can apply for. Mm -hmm. But actually it's women's refuge centres are the only ones who can apply for it at the moment, Mm. which is bullshit in itself, because why are women having to pay for their own refuge, firstly? Mm. And why is a tax that should not even exist the only thing that will keep refuges going? I mean, it just, the whole thing is mind-blowing. But also, we can't even apply for it, because that's not what we do. Which just seems so ironic. It does seem rather odd that a period poverty charity can't benefit from money collected by it sanitary yeah stuff. it's beyond bonkers but i wouldn't want to take any money away from a refuge center either absolutely you know yeah. so please support us because that's the only way that we that we get stuff done and if you want to volunteer if you're in i mean if you're all over the uk like we, as i said we will be bringing stuff out but london wise especially if people want to volunteer just jump on the website and we'll be able to help you and you can buy merch oh god like we're covered in merch here okay it's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's a lot of it Gabby, thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I know you're probably busy with the Christmas shopping, but just to let you know, if you've fallen out with a friend and you've got a fiver that you were going to spend on their Christmas present, but, you know, fuck them, you can give that £5 to us via our Patreon site, which is www.patreon.com. And we would be really grateful because it would help us continue to make the sort of content that you appear to enjoy. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we finally get our asses on the podium as we talk all things women's sport. And that's right, I am talking about award season. We kick off, see what I did there, with last week's Ballon d'Or award ceremony, a night celebrating football's finest in which an award was handed out to a woman for the first time in the competition's history in 2018. And this is in a sport that we largely consider to be doing okay-ish by women compared to lots of others, but anyways. So you'll no doubt have seen that the winner of the award was Norway and Lyon forward Ada Hergerberg, That is a cracking name, isn't it? Anyway, she was slapped right back down again by the host, and I'm going to call him professional twat, French radio DJ Martin Solvig. On handing over the award, he asked her if she could twerk, rather than, you know, about football uh, or anything else. I mean, he could really have asked her pretty much anything else that would have been better than that. So just to clarify, what he asked her was if she could shake her ass because that is what twerking is if nose as in the word no not noses on your face if nose could kill her one word response would surely have ended solvic her reaction is to be fair everything and i actually love her for it but as much as the reaction by the public to the footage of the instance and by sportsmen dame andy murray obviously and by commentators, etc., was heartening. I mean, even Piers Morgan thought that it was sexist. But the issue about it is that it sort of really shifted the focus from the fact that it's a huge deal that women have finally been invited into the party onto the fact that 
Oh, it's just shit. It's just shit being a sportswoman, I think, basically. But let's congratulate her again and help her reclaim what should only ever have been a moment of glory. Oh, and by the way, from the uh, Jeremy Clarkson School of Apologies, he was joking. And um, all I'm going to say to that is that it's not a defence that would stand up in a court of law, is it, mate? Anyway... Speaking of awards, the BT Sport Action Women Awards also took place last week. Still not sure where I stand on that name, but fuck it. At least it's actually guaranteed some women will win awards for sport. The top honour went to Dina Asher-Smith, who also won the Sports Journalist Association's British Sportswoman of the Year Award in the same week. It's a fair cop for Britain's fastest ever woman, who set the 100-metre sprint record at 10.85 seconds at the European Championships in Berlin this summer. I would be highly surprised if she didn't make it into the contenders for the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award, which is happening on this coming Sunday, if you're listening on Wednesday. The nominees of which will this year be revealed on the night for the first time. Ooh. Presumably, that means if you're off in Miami having a lovely time, there's uh, no BBC camera crew there with you to capture the moment someone in Congress who happens to be in the area presents you with the award. But anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Of course, World Cup Golden Boot winner Harry Kane has pretty much got to win it, I would have thought, even though there will be. And I don't mean this as any disrespect to Harry because... It's really hard not to love Harry Kane. He does seem like a really nice chap. And, you know, fair play. Golden Boot, it's it's a top honour. But, you know, you might have some thoughts about the teams England were up against in the World Cup, to be fair. But anyway, there will be, in my opinion, far more deserving candidates. But if there is one thing we know the British public and the British press love, it's a white male footballer. And in case you missed it over the weekend and you give any part of a shit, Piers Morgan does not agree with that, just FYI. Um, He thinks that black and white footballers are all equal in the eyes of the press, which is clearly bullshit. But anyway, I digress. I'd also imagine Lizzie Yarnell, two-time skeleton Olympic gold medalist and the GB's most decorated Winter Olympian of all time would make the shortlist in terms of female prospects. But neither her nor Dina Asher-Smith are going to win it. I actually don't even think a top three place is going to happen because, you know, Lewis Hamilton and the Welsh lad who isn't Chris Froome. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I will be back next week talking about my sportswomen of the year. But in the meantime, any thoughts on any of this? Do tweet me. You'll find me at Inspiragen, most probably making sarcastic comments and crying over montages come Sunday night. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week, I watched Big Hero 6, which is a stupid fucking name. (laughs) And even having seen it now, I can't quite work out why it's called Big Hero 6. That's the boy's name, isn't it? Not though, the boy's name is Hero with an I. Yeah, well, it's a big spoiler alert, but it's because at the end they form into a super group of superheroes. Yeah, but Big Hero? Six of them. Well, the sixth bit I get, but Big Hero <laughs> seems a bit... I get, I get the counting, Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 2014, it's of interest for something that we will be talking about later in the week in a bit more depth in Outside the Box, which is Disney's acquisition to the rights of Marvel Comics. Mm. This is the first Marvel Comics-themed thing. It's based, and quite loosely from what I can tell, on a pretty obscure comic series for Marvel. I'd never heard of it. When I mentioned it the other day to a friend of mine who has a little girl who is eight, he said that she really liked it. Mm -hmm. She seems quite discerning, so I had some hopes for it, but I left it towards the end because I, I couldn't really find any reason to go, oh, that looks really interesting, I'll watch it. What about you guys? Do you manage to watch it this week? I did watch it, yes. I also watched it. Wow, look at that. We'll have a riot of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> did you like it? I did. When I went to rent this, do you remember like a couple of times that I've with slightly more obscure Disney films that I've started to watch them? And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm not watching the right thing. Yeah. It happened when I was watching Atlantis. It also happened when I was watching that thing about dinosaurs that looked like... And I thought, oh, this isn't... That's it. 
I mean, it turned out I was actually watching the wrong thing. I was watching a TV series is, that has yeah. followed this up. And that looks pretty shit, actually. And it looked like animated, like a TV thing. It's animated a lot cheaper. So, yeah, when I actually got to this, I was like, oh, thank goodness. I'm actually in a real film. Anyway, so it's about two brothers who live in a place called San Francisco, which is this weird but nice-looking hybrid of Tokyo and San Francisco. Can't work out whether the Japanese have invaded America or the Americans have invaded Japan. But actually, what I will say straight off about this film is that city looks terrific. They've got some really great ideas. I mean, it's got the steep hills of San Francisco. And it's got the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's got those little Japanese things topped off. I like the look of it. And they do they do a lot of zoom out, let's have a look at the yeah. city, particularly with a, a flying scene. And they on. do a car chase, which is part bullet, obviously, because it's San Francisco. But it's also part of the Bourne identity because it takes place in a shit car. Anyway, it's about two brothers. They're called Hiro and Tadashi. They don't have any parents. They live with their aunt, who is played by Mayor Rudolph. And that is the first interesting thing. You actually said it to me this morning when we met on a bus. I did. I said, it's really weird listening to Mayor Rudolph voice a white woman. Because she's a black woman and she plays it as Mayor Rudolph. Yeah. And it, it threw me a little bit. And also the white woman she plays, their aunt isn't at all Japanese when everyone else is a little bit Japanese battling. Yeah, I agree. The little boy, Hero, he's 14. He spends his time essentially, you know, in space, any excuse to mention space, you know, in space where they do that back, that backstreet robot wars. Oh, no, yes. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah. It's basically, that's what he spends his time doing. Smoking. Yeah. <laughs> His brother, because they are both very technically savvy. Go a little bit further than that. They're, yeah. they're clearly genius. Instead, goes to like a university and he tries to encourage Hero to go to a university. He takes him to his lab. He introduces him to the gang, which we will later learn become Big Hero 6. But the kid's quite unconvinced. And then something really, really tragic happens. I know Disney has a lot of death, but this seems particularly sad and while he's trying to work through the events that happen little hero he accidentally activates a care robot who his brother has created whose job it is to look after him and the two of them have to pair up basically and end up fighting a superhero a super villain a super villain in fact, the robot's called Baymax, which sounds very much like Betamax. I don't Betamax, know if that's, on, yeah. if that's on purpose or not. And his general concern is the, the medical well-being of everyone around him. I can, I just, can I just say I love him? Well, I have to say, this film really split in half for me because a lot of the stuff in it, I could not give a fuck about. It had some really desperately massive plot holes and it was really stupid and there were just stupid, stupid things happening. Like, we're supposed to be so wildly into the future that basically a 14-year-old can make his own flying device in about 20 seconds and create all this stuff. But at the same time, his... Where does he fit in all, all the wanking? Yeah. <laughs> but also the acceptance thing that he gets from the university comes in through the mail. To him, it's actually a, a piece of paper, which is a bit odd. Somewhere along the third act, I think they decided that they wanted the bad guy to have motivation. And I think it was the motivation was sort of backwardsly written into the plot. Yeah. So it doesn't really make sense because there's two guys who are basically head to head and they've met earlier and there seems to be no difficulty between them considering what you then learn has mm. happened in the past, which is a bit mad. But all of that said... Baymax, played by Scott Adsit, who is probably best known as Pate from 30 Rock. And you've got to feel sorry for him because when you're up against Tina Fey and Tracy Morgan and Alec Baldwin, it's very hard to stick out in 30 Rock. But every single second he is on the screen, I think he is absolutely freaking wonderful. I love him. He's so funny, but it's also really touching. I've said this quite a lot, actually. I think that voice acting doesn't get the credit it's deserved. But if it did, if there was an Oscar that existed for voice acting, Scott Adsit would get it simply purely for that fa la 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 thing he does <laughs> when he's trying to do like a fist bump. <laughs> fist bump. fa la 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 They took the excellent decision to make it when he accidentally runs out of battery that he becomes drunk. It was so Which funny. is super funny. There's a great bit <laughs> where he says, we jumped out a window. <laughs> that genuinely made me really, really laugh when he's playing with that morbidly obese cat saying, furry baby. <laughs> Hairy baby. Hairy, Hairy baby. baby. Yeah. 
That is hilarious. I mean, the kid's quite cute. Uh, his hair looks like, like an explosion. He has an incongruously deep voice. He does. But you know what's really super, super interesting about this? They use a word in this that I've never heard used in every single Disney film that I've watched so far. Is it cunt? <laughs> no, it's even more shocking than that. What? They use the word puberty. And they actually explain oh, what puberty is in it, which is staggering. That is good. For Disney, I think. Like I say, bits of it, I was like, I don't know why I'm watching this. I'm really bored. And I would drift off. And then back in would slowly come this robot and Scott Adsit's voice. And I was thoroughly charmed. I was initially worried that I was like, oh, God, it's another wall and then it, I wonder why Disney is so obsessed with making us think that robots are benevolent and kind when they will ultimately rise up and kill us and I will be being beaten to death by a robot going, Disney didn't prepare me for this. And just with the flight of the Concords, the humans are dead yeah. playing in the backgrounds. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a film of two halves, as it were. What do you guys think? I love Baymax. I just really loved him. I thought it was good and I enjoyed it and I laughed out loud quite a few times and I just thought Baymax was a beautiful creation but it was a bit of a sausage fest now in the gang that becomes Big Hero 6 there are indeed two birds and you know they're equally talented one of them's like this ditzy throws things out of a fucking handbag out of a handbag that bothered me and the other one is like a proper like little skater girl or or she's got like a a special bike that she makes and wheels and stuff and she's called Go-Go and that's great but those and the ant are the three women characters. And you could have had one of the scientists, so you, your doctor who runs the university or Cray who runs all the scientific yeah. businesses, being a woman. That would have been fine. But it just felt like there were two brothers, Baymax is a blow. It felt very sausage fest, which I thought was a real shame because there's loads to like in it. Yeah, agreed. I thought it was fucking awful. I hated it. <laughs> So boring. So no soul. boring. And I just thought so I had no soul. Fucking dull. Did you not it love Baymax? Like, do you know do you know what? It felt like an I was watching an eighties cartoon with my brothers, thinking, Why the fuck do I have to watch this shit? Like I resented it. And then can we talk about the music? That fucking song. Like, like what they thought it was so good they'd play it twice. Oh, I hated it. Did she actually watch the film or did she watch the TV series? I don't know. No, I watched the film. What about Baymax? I quite liked that he was called Bay. I sort of thought that was funny. That's about it. <laughs> Just silently staring at Jen. Wowzers. He's grieving, basically, and the robot is trying to, like, fix him. So, like, maybe if I had more of a soul. I thought okay. the car chase was good. <laughs> <laughs> And that the the girl takes over because the bloke won't do it properly. I want a racist crab (laughs) and some tunes, all right? That's all I want. That's all I want. This is one of the things that's been a big learning curve for me on Dunleavy Does Disney is one that we we need to worry about Jen Moore and see that (laughs) (laughs) The Little Mermaid is pretty much the only Disney movie she likes. It seems to me that the better they get, the more Jen dislikes them. What score are you giving it, Dunleavy? Three. Three what? Three Fa-la-la-la-las. <laughs> Out of five. I think that's fair enough. I don't know I why that's... she's so angry. She doesn't watch them all. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 